0: I mentioned to you earlier that coming into the service this morning, there was this special tenderness in the presence of God. And and I've sensed all week long, I told the staff in an early morning meeting on on Monday or Tuesday that I just felt like God wanted to do something, not just today, but next week in our services as it relates to family and marriage and relationships in general for that matter. And I prayed, God, how do you, you know, I feel like you want to do something really tender today, but I don't know how to conclude I normally begin with the end in mind, but to, all week long and to, even today, I must admit, I, I don't have some really powerful way to conclude this. So I'm trusting the Holy Spirit takes His Word and the tenderness that has been here all day long and applies it to your life and, and for whatever reason hasn't told me how He wants to conclude it because He's going to tie it up some way in your life and you'll never be the same. I felt a strong leading over the last several days from the Holy Spirit to examine our family relationships from the life of David and next week from the life of Solomon and let their lives speak to us about how we live out our own family lives and we manage our own relationships. Now, this is a reminder to all of you, but especially the men that have forgotten. Next week is Mother's Day. And moms, we're going to celebrate you, but I want to challenge you as a mom right off the bat. My sermon is going to be less about you and less to you and more for you. Most of you are praying mothers. You travail in prayer with, your, with God over your family and your kids and your kids' families. And next week's message on Mother's Day is going to be more of a message that is in partnership with what you've been praying for your families. So if you are a young family and you usually go to moms, I challenge you because God's going to, he's doing something right now. I don't know how to explain it, but he's doing something deeply in our relationships. And I believe he's going to continue that next week as I continue this series on the family next week. Just kind of a last minute thing he dropped in our heart. And I really want you, if you're young, just say, hey, mom, God's doing something in our church, special time Mother's Day. Why don't you think about using your influence to get everybody here uh, at North Place or at our house? Or if you are uh, the mother that everybody comes to see, use your influence to get your whole crew in the house. Because I really believe next week's message is going to be a partnership with the prayers that you have been praying for your family. We are in a journey as a church to go through the entire Bible in the calendar year of 2013. We're indebted to Zondervan and, and Pastor Randy Frazee and Mac, Pastor Max Lucado uh, for the materials they've provided us that we're studying in our small groups, and they've ha- added to our spiritual growth. Specifically this week, I'm grateful to Pastor Kyle Eidelman, who pastors in Kentucky, who took his church through the story. And listening to Pastor Kyle just really inspired me to use these next two weeks from the life of David and Solomon to to address the family. Now, I'm deviating from the curriculum, the material. So uh, what that means is there's a lot of meat that I'm not going to be addressing that is missed that will be in your small group studies the next two weeks. I challenge you to connect with them so this gets deeper on the inside of you, beyond what even I'm going to say uh, from the word. And I, I really challenge you to connect with the group. For example, this week is going to ask one of the questions, answer one of these questions. Um, why did God seem to be easier on David than he was Saul? All Saul did, he was disobedient, but he didn't, he, he brought back the spoils of war. Uh, and God told him not to, and God stripped him of his anointing, stripped him of his crown, and life was miserable for Saul after that. And here David commits adultery and then murders a man to cover it up, and his name is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 with the roll calls of the hero of faith. That sounds, it's, it's, it looks like inequity. It, it doesn't look just. And and why is it that way? In today's, this week's small group study, that's just one of the questions from this part of scripture that is answered in your study. This morning, I want us to focus on the second part of the life of David. At this point, he's no longer a shepherd boy slinging rocks and killing giants. He is now the king of Israel. And this part of his life is covered in chapter 12 of the story, the chronological arrangement of scripture. As we read, we discover that David's family life is in shambles. And if you were going to categorize His family life into some sort of genre, you would not put David's family under the genre of a fairy tale. His family relationships are not a happily ever after story. Matter of fact, David's family life is more like a soap opera meets the Jerry Springer family. You read it and you think, really, is God going to really put this in the Bible? I mean, I mean, this is David, a man after God's own heart, and that's what I love about the Word of God. It gives us the warts and all about His followers. It shows us everything about God's people, and the honesty of the Word of God to me shows the integrity and the righteous character of the the integrity of the Word and the righteous character of God. I, it's easier for me to believe all the good stuff because He didn't hold back and telling us all of the bad stuff and all of these things that go on behind the scenes in the lives of people that follow God it shows humanity's bent towards sin but in every time it shows God's pursuit of us in our brokenness it shows his grace and his pursuit of us and boy did David ever need the grace of God in his family relationships and that's not very different from us today. I want to frame today's message by having you ask a question of your own home or your own family. If the walls of your house could speak, and thank God they can't, but if they could, what would they say? What story would they tell? Would they tell a story of laughter and joy, or would they tell a story of constant conflict and angry words? Maybe you grew up in a home where mom and dad were always fighting, and you remember at night laying in your bed and putting a pillow over your ears to try to drown out the arguing or running to your room so that you didn't get caught in the crossfire of the yelling match that maybe sometimes turned physical. And in those moments, you promised to yourself, it's going to be different in my family. I'm not going to yell like that. But you yell today. Or I'm not going to be passive and unengaged the way my dad was passive and unengaged. But you are. I'm not going to walk out like he did or she did. But you're thinking about it even now. If the walls of your house could speak, would they tell a story of courageous commitment or a story of broken promises? We stand before our spouses on wedding day and we say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and we mean it. I mean, we really do mean it in that moment, but something unexpected happens to our story. We didn't know the economy was going to get bad and that he was going to lose his job and not be able to find another one and you didn't know that she was going to struggle with depression, and neither of you knew that a special needs child was going to be thrown into the mix and 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 none of you neither of you knew that there was going to be this unexpected attraction to a coworker and there's this bond that seems to be tighter there than at home and and you didn't know your husband was going to become attentive, inattentive and 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 not want to talk and be passive and you didn't know your wife was going to stop caring about the way she looked. And something in the story changed. Something happened. And in the context of all of this, we ask the question, if the walls of your house could speak, would they tell us a story of commitment and courage or a story of brokenness and disappointment? You thought when you said, I do, it was going to be a love story. I mean, you weren't naive. You knew it was going to be tough, but, but you thought you two were going to go through this together, holding hands, falling asleep at night in each other's arms, and that wouldn't change. But instead of a love story, it's become a business partnership. And it's really kind of boring, to be honest. It's a story about managing the household chores. It's a story about passing off the kids from one extracurricular to the other. The love is dwindled, The romance is gone. So if your walls could talk, what story would they tell? My guess that David never imagined that his family story would have told a tragedy. Life went from really bad or really good to really bad really fast. His family was a train wreck. Chapter 12 of the story and 2 Samuel 11, 1 begins this way in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. But David didn't go to war. He was a king. It was springtime. He should have been at war with his men and where the other kings were. But he was in a good season. He didn't feel like he was needed. You know, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to sit this one out. The guys have it. And he stays at the palace. And he's at the house one night. He can't sleep. The sun is setting over the city. He decides to go up and take in the sunset. And uh, he knows what he'll see when he goes up there that time of day. He knows. He knows that his house overlooks every other rooftop in the city. He knows what happens at the last light. He knows. And he goes up there and he sees Bathsheba... He brings her to the palace. He has an affair. What David did that day is not unlike many of us who get up in the middle of the night. We know what's on Showtime and Cinemax before we turn it there at 3 o'clock in the morning. But we go to the roof anyway. We know. And there's Bathsheba. She's beautiful. And David says to one of his servants, who is this? Well, David, that's Uriah's wife, the Hittite, the warrior who's fought along beside you for years. He's in the battle fighting for you right now. That's his wife. David sins for her. The affair begins. She becomes pregnant. He becomes desperate to cover it up and to cover his sin and keep it a secret. So he calls Uriah back from battle hoping that he will spend the night with Bathsheba and it will not look like it was David's kid. But Uriah is a man of God. Uriah is loyal to his wife. He is loyal to his God. He is loyal to his king. And he's loyal to the men fighting. And he says... I can't do that when they're at war, so he spends the night on the porch. And David has a problem. David has to cover this up. He's got to maintain the illusion that his family is okay and that he's not doing anything wrong. And a lot of us come in the doors of the church week in and week out with the same goal in mind. Because when it comes to our families, our marriages, or our children, we feel this pressure for everyone around us to think that we don't have any problems. But you know what? We've all got problems. None of us in this room, including the Jarrett family, is a perfect family. All of us are struggling in one way or another. But we try, we feel pressured to maintain the illusion. So David decides, because it didn't work with the thing with Uriah... He goes to another level. He writes a letter and seals it to send to the commander of the army to put Uriah at the front of the battle lines. He gives it to Uriah and says, give this to the commander. Basically, Uriah is carrying his own death warrant. And it happens just like that. Basically, David arranges it. David commits murder. Bathsheba becomes his wife. I mean, you're asking, how could this happen? And if you're new to the scripture, you never really read it, or you're hearing the story, and you never really heard it played out like this, you're thinking... I mean, can it get any more Jerry Springer than that? Can it get any more dysfunctional than that? Oh yeah, just just keep reading. If you keep reading, you will find out that there's this Amnon guy. He's one of David's sons. And Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, David's daughter. And Tamar tells her full brother Absalom about it. And Absalom spends two years plotting revenge, and he kills Amnon, and that boils into a civil war in the country between David and Absalom, which ends in Absalom's death. David's family life is in pieces. And how did it happen? How did his family become such a mess? When did it all fall apart? And if you could go back in the story, maybe you could start seeing some things that led up to all of this dysfunction. If you've ever been to, at least lately, there are a lot of action movies that have come out using this this feature in literature called reverse chronology. It's where you walk in and the movie comes on and what you would think would be the climactic scene at the end of the movie is actually the very first thing. They hook you with all this stuff blowing up and all this conflict and these relationships and you're watching all of this scene and you're not really getting it. And the writer spends the rest of the movie explaining to you why that just happened. And when you get to the end of the movie, all of a sudden, it all makes sense. It's called reverse chronology. Books start that way often. Movies start that way. Let's use some reverse chronology on David's life. Because all of us want to focus on the David and Bathsheba affair. We focus on the cover-up, or we focus on the rape, or the death of a son, or the civil war. But but, but go back before all of the stuff, the dysfunction. And I think there's a lot of value in us going back because for many of us right now, we're in a moment in our life when things are starting to go wrong. Maybe we don't really see it, but we sense it. We're starting to sense that things are going wrong. We know it, but we don't really know what to do about it. And maybe it's not really going wrong. Maybe it's just us. It'll all work out. But eventually, everything, if we keep on this track, is going to fall apart. And if we could go back, once it falls apart, we're going to want to go back to this moment, like right now, today, to this place, and want to look at what decisions that we were making today that ultimately led to the collision that we're headed towards. If you want to look with me in the Bible, go ahead and turn to the 6th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel And I think it will be helpful to us as as families. And and as a pastor, most of the time when families get to me, it's usually after everything has fallen apart. It's after the dramatic uh, conclusion. The affair has been discovered or the marriage is already coming to an end or whatever it might be. I see it after it's already exploded. And I listen to them tell their story. Well, how did it happen? And the person who's telling the story often doesn't even know how it happened. And they tell me that. You know, I, I don't know. Everything was fine one day and then she left, or I thought everything was okay and he just didn't come back home. I don't know what happened. And I think we can learn some things by going back in David's life to try to figure out what happened. So by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has married Michael the daughter of Saul. And this is like a Disney movie. I mean, you got this young warrior that's about to be a king who falls in love and marries this young princess, the daughter of the king, and she's given to him because he slays the giant. I mean, you got this young, muscular kid who defeats the enemy, and you got this royal wedding between a good-looking boy and a good-looking girl, and the king, king-to-be, marries this princess. I mean, it's a fairy tale beginning, but... By the time you get to Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, things are going pretty well, but you get this window. I mean, it's a good season for Israel. It's a, it's a good season for David. The Ark of the Lord is coming back into Jerusalem. There's this massive celebration coming on. David's leading the celebration. He's dancing passionately in worship. The Scripture says, with all his might, so passionately, that he dances out of his kingly robe. And his wife, Michael, is looking out the window where she can see what's happening and what's taking place. And she's really embarrassed by the behavior of her husband dancing in a, a loincloth, basically, as he danced in all of his passion, especially with these other women that are present. Let me just say this. Wives, you probably know what it's like to have your husbands embarrass you in public. It's almost like God made that a part of our job description. So this is, Michael is experiencing what you know so well. And then you get to see what's happening here. David's embarrassing Michael. She's resenting him for it. And then verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household after this amazing celebration, God's presence had come back to Jerusalem. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So here's this great day of celebration. David's had a great day at the office. He walks through the door to bless her and bring her into the conversation. And the first thing she does is sarcastically say, Oh, how the king distinguished himself today. Michael attacks David and David fires right back. He's immediately defensive. And this is what David said to Michael. Verse 21. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in your family. And that's a great tactic. Just bring the in-laws into it. That's going to that's gonna help everything. David said, it's, it's before the Lord. I mean, it really was. I meant before the Lord. It was God that I was dancing in front of. It was a celebration, but that's not the way Michael saw it. And the story at the end of the chapter says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. And a lot of people see that and say, well, God cursed her with barrenness because of her criticism. And maybe that's the case. But there's another way to look at this. Maybe we get a a window in this conversation into the rift between David and Michael that blew up in this moment. The conversation started here and all of it came to the surface and they never had relations again because of the rift. And she never had another child. And this is the last time you ever see her name mentioned in Scripture. And you think, well, why did the Bible tell us this dialogue? I mean, a play by play. I mean, of all of the things you could have said about David, of all, I mean, the, this is in the context of the ark of God coming back to Jerusalem, which is the message of the Old Testament is the presence of God being with his people. And the presence of God is back in Jerusalem. That's the main point. And yet God takes a break from the main point to give us one conversation between a husband and a wife. Why? Maybe because if things had gone differently in this seeming insignificant moment, then everything else we read about David's life after this would have been different as well. I mean, what if David would have included Michael in the celebration. What if he would have made sure that his wife was by his side to celebrate the ark returning. What if David would have made her a welcome part of his life outside the home. What if Michael would have been encouraging to her husband. I mean it was a great day for him. What if she would have walked up and just given him a hug and celebrated with him. What if David would have listened to his wife and tried to see some things from her perspective. What if there would have, wouldn't have would have been all the sarcasm right off of the start. What if the criticism would have been replaced by praise. What if there there would have never been any personal attacks, especially on the family. What if, what if David would have been more understanding about how she felt? Or Michael wouldn't have been so insecure and defensive? What if somebody would have said, I'm sorry? Or David could have said, my passion got the best of me. I didn't realize how it looked from your perspective and everybody else. I'm sorry, forgive me. What if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with the same passion and faith that he fought Goliath? How would that have changed history? I'm convinced that the stories of our marriages and our families are written in the insignificant moments that we overlook. They're written in the day-to-day life. That's where our stories are written. There's this accumulative effect of daily small decisions that ultimately write the story of our marriage and our family. In the big moments, we look at David's life and say, well, David's life was shattered on that roof when he looked at Bathsheba. It was shattered when they had the affair. It was shattered when he murdered her husband. But it's what led up to that moment that shattered David's life. It's an accumulative effect of the small daily decision within our homes and our relationships and our families that ultimately write the story of who we are. But we don't think like that. We notice the big moment where everything falls apart but there are little things happening in our life if we don't change our behavior and our words and our lifestyle that are gonna lead up to a big moment. And it's not the big moment, it's all that happened behind it. It's like that big tree that the Texas wind blew over. You've seen it. The wind eventually topples the tree, but the wind that toppled the tree wasn't the problem. For years, termites have been eating at the tree or the wind and the rain and the weather has eroded the soil from around the root system and here comes just one storm of many. It has endured through the years and there's this strong gust that topples the tree over and we look at that storm and tending to think that one gust of wind toppled that tree. No, that one gust of wind didn't topple that tree. It was the little things that have been happening forever that wound up in the demise of that tree. And I think that illustration speaks a lot to how our relationships work. The storm comes through and we look at all of the damage after the storm and we say that whatever that was is the storm that blew that family apart. But there are a lot of things that have been leading up to that moment before the tree finally was blown over by that gust of wind. One author said it this way, when we get married we give our spouse some kind of burden to carry. And I would say that in any human relationship, I don't care if it's at work or parenting or with your kids or at school if you're going to be in a relationship meaningfully with anybody to be in a relationship with that person and you agree to that relationship you accept the burden of being in that relationship with that person and for some of you when you said I do your spouse gave you workaholic that's what he is or what she is and you you are carrying that burden or maybe he gave you a rock and it's a hot temper or it's his passivity, just doesn't want to engage. But because you love him, you're mentally committed to carry this burden and this weight, and you're going to carry this rock you've been handed. But maybe you've been handed even a heavier rock than this. Maybe it's an addiction, a pornography addiction or an alcohol addiction and Or maybe it's a rock that your spouse hands you of nagging and criticism. I mean, you love your spouse. You know, I'm going to carry it. I'm mentally determined to carry it. And for a while, that's what you do. But at some point, your mental determination is eroded by the weight of this burden. And you're overcome with emotional and spiritual and physical exhaustion. You do the best as long as you can. Somewhere along the way, the rock drops. Boom. It shatters. And everybody points to where the rock shatters and says, that's when it all fell apart. But it started unraveling when the muscles started cramping because it wasn't that moment. It's the heaviness of the rock for such a long time. And we see our families, people that we're in relationship with carrying the rocks that they have to carry to be in relationship with us. And we say, you know, they're fine. They can handle it. My spouse can carry that rock of me constantly being gone on business. I know. I know she needs me to be more intentional and have more time together. But she's going to be fine. It's been that way for a long time. She can carry that rock. Or I know my husband can carry the rock of my criticism and my negativity. I know, I know he wants me to be more positive. I know he wants me to be more, more encouraging. But he's going to be fine. He's put up with me. This is me. He knows me. This is my personality. He's put up with that rock for a long time. I know the kids can carry on with us yelling and and being at each other all the time. I mean, they're fine. They're resilient, right? They're kids. And they are for a while. Your husband, your wife, your kids. They carry that rock as best as they can for as long as they can. But at some point, their mental determination to carry that rock is overcome by pure physical exhaustion. And somebody drops the rock. Can we think deeply enough and prayerfully enough for a moment to honestly look at the rocks that we've asked the people in our life to carry to be in relationship with us? They're carrying something to be in relationship with you. You you can't be alive and not be a burden in a relationship in some way. Your spouse, your kids, your co-workers. Because some of us, the rocks that we're putting on them, Becoming too heavy for them to bear. They're getting tired. And if we don't do something soon, the rock's going to drop. What we see in chapter 6 are some helpful lessons in how to deal with the day in and the day out conflicts that lead to the falling of the tree and the dropping of the rock. I just want to give you four things real quick before we leave. This is the summation. From chapter 6, this little conversation between David and Michael that probably was a window into the soul, reverse chronology of how you got to the rock. When conflict arises in our relationships, we need to identify what the real issue is. Number one, identify what the real issue is. you got to take time to do this. It's hard in the heat of the moment, but believe me, take time to identify what the real issue is. Michael lays into David as soon as he came in, and David immediately gets defensive. But what would have happened if David would have listened? Maybe the reason Michael felt that way is because she wanted to be invited in all along. She wanted him... She wanted to be celebrating with him. Maybe she felt that way because she was feeling a little insecure that David was dancing around with all of those slave girls and she just needed to be reaffirmed. you got to know what the real issue is if you're going to get into a meaningful conversation. Is the issue that your husband has come home late or that you just never know when he's coming home? Or is that when he comes home, he's on his cell phone or he's checking email or text messages, he gets home and thinks, okay, I checked the box off, I got home. But it didn't satisfy you because he's not really home. What's the issue? Secondly, we have to learn that the day in and day out managing a marriage, in order to, to deal with those things and relationships on any level, you got to find a good time and a good place for difficult conversations. We have those conversations in the car going down the road when everybody's present because our lives are so crazy and the car ride is supposed to be an encouraging time or a time for us to be praying with our kids or finding out what's going on in their lives winds up becoming an argument or the times that we sit down and eat at the table with our family that is supposed to be encouraging and spiritually transformative winds up being negative and critical and and the times when we go to bed and and we're supposed to connect we don't because uh, we we let those are the only moments we ever see each other because we're not intentional with a good time and a good place to have the difficult conversations David walks in the door from a celebration the greatest celebration of his life, Michael lays into him. May have been a good point, but it probably wasn't the right time. She needed to express some things to him, but it would have been better if she found a different time, a different place to do that. Or David could have said, I want to hear you out, but let's do this at a different moment. It's important to find the right place. Thirdly, let me say this, stick to the issue. I mean, David expands the issue. When he brought her daddy into it, he just opened up a whole nother can of worms. There was an issue on her heart that needed to be resolved in the moment. And then her daddy and her whole family got brought into the argument. Now you're running on two tracks. And before long, everybody's throwing everything they've been holding into this conversation. And you got a web Dr. Phil can untangle. <laughs> Stick to the issue. Deal with that in that moment. And lastly, I would say, start with the positive. Something happens in us when gold is called out of our lives. When destiny is spoken positively and we are affirmed, find something. I don't know what Michael could have said. Sweet dance moves, babe. I don't know what she could have said. But she she could have found something positive to start this off with because David, I know this is a man, he comes home and what he wants from his wife, he wants her to be impressed like the slave girls were. He wants, instead instead of her being impressed... And giving a little praise. She's immediately sarcastic and critical. And it takes the strength out of him. And he goes on the defensive. And he fights back. And he comes out swinging. He was hoping for some encouragement. He wants to win the heart of his wife. He wants to impress her. But she's critical. Let me read a verse of scripture to you out of the Proverbs. Proverbs twenty-one nineteen, Gentlemen, it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. If your wife just likes to fight all the time and you say anything and it sets her off, the proverb writer says, buddy, it's better for you to just go in the desert and die. Just keep walking. (laughs) It's a drip, 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 waterboarding um, (laughs) until she gets what she wants. Listen, let me say this. I I, I honestly want to call this a pause and say this. I'm always in the grill of the men of this church. When I meet with them in a small group or we have some special men's events, I even went back and looked to make sure my assumption was right. Every Mother's Day message I've ever preached in my life has been honoring to women, uplifting to women, encouraging to women, battling for women, thank God for women. And every Father's Day message I've ever preached is like, come on, dude. Be the man of God. Pray with your family. I mean, that's the way we do it. Because we need, passive, we need passive men to become spiritually strong men who lead their family. So, so, so maybe we balance it out, you know? I mean, here's the truth. Maybe the reason he's more passive than he should be is because criticism and negativity and constant discouragement has destroyed his spirit. When a wife is critical and negative all the time, her husband is inclined to naturally win the heart. And he feels like nothing he does is good enough. And finally he just gives up. And that's why he sits in the Lazy Boy and watches sports all day. And it seems like he's disengaged with ever doing anything and maybe it's, a, it's this double-edged sword, that this cycle that keeps going. And it's these little things that we're putting up with every day, both of us, husbands and wives, that if something doesn't change, somebody's going to drop the rock. Now, gentlemen, let me tell you this. This is where the cross comes in. The wife is naturally bent, stereotypically, the lady is going to be more encouraging and ladies moms I will tell you our families you are the glue and your encouragement that holds our families together because that's what men thrive on is the encouragement But gentlemen, you are supposed to be the reconciler. The Bible tells us that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? He pursued the church. Pursued her for reconciliation. And the cross is a picture of a loving God pursuing a broken relationship to reconcile. And you say, but I didn't do anything wrong. Somewhere you have done something wrong. And you say, yeah, but pastor, it's, it's um, 95% her problem and 5% my problem. Well, apologize for the 5%. Don't tell her you're apologizing for just 5%. Lord, no, 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 no. That won't work. You, it is up to you, sir according to Scripture, to be the reconciler, her the encourager, you the pursuer of the brokenness. God made it that way. You need her encouragement, and she needs your pursuit. She may not always respond the way you want her to, but you don't always respond to Jesus, and He keeps pursuing you. I'm going to ask if... uh... Pastor Bear would come and I just you know the grace you know what this is, this is so grace, so much grace so much grace if you read over to Matthew chapter number 1 and it's given the genealogy of, of Jesus you know how it refers to Jesus? the son of David really? son of God wants to be born from the line of an adulterer and a murderer yeah, you know which of David's kids David had a lot of kids you know which of David's kids that God allowed to be the offspring that would carry the line of Jesus Solomon that means Bathsheba was in the line I mean I don't I don't, I don't get it but somehow because of God's grace and I've seen it in my own family he does his best to try to make the best out of what we really mess up and so it's not over for you. It's not over for your family. It doesn't have to be. Maybe the reason God didn't give me some spare I mean I thought about all the things I've done in the past to try to help you remember this message and for God to apply it in a powerful way in your life. And nothing seemed right. Maybe the reason nothing seemed right is cuz I wasn't supposed to do anything. I was just supposed to let it be between you and him. Just to sit and let it marinate in your heart and let the Word begin to put roots down and help you identify what kind of burden the people in your life have to carry to be in relationship with you and identify. You know, and you say, well, I'm not married, Pastor. Well, you know, what I've said today can reply to any meaningful relationship at any level of your life. Maybe... God wants to put his finger into that area of your life and begin to pull you closer. We started with David's prayer, creating me a clean heart. And to be the pursuer, maybe you need that. To be the encourager, maybe you need that. To make it right with a kid or a parent, maybe you need that. Or maybe you need to make it right with Jesus today. He's ready. If he'll let if he will allow the name of a murderer and an adulterer to be the moniker that he's been referred to for centuries. There's grace in that. The son of David. Then there's grace for you. This is what I want us to do just in case. because none of us have a perfect family. None of us have perfect relationships. So I don't even want to burden the prayer team with the responsibility today of having to pray for somebody else. I'm just going to ask Pastor Bear to keep the environment worshipful. And um, I'm going to, in a moment, I'll have you to stand. And when I do, I'm going to speak a blessing over your life. And I want this front to be available for prayer. You want to come with your spouse or your family or, You want to come and pray as an individual over your family. You want to come and give your heart to Jesus. You want to pray the Psalm 51 prayer for repentance. Or maybe you just want to sit right where you are. Hold hands or you're standing there alone and you're just going to say, God, do that tender thing that we felt all day long. Just get to the tender place and do what you can do. Because there is something supernatural happening that I can't see. I I know in my knower that we are right here in this moment for a reason. God led, this is not, when I woke up Monday morning, preaching this message is not what I had in mind. I believe God is doing something this week and he's going to finish it next week. And I want you to let him do whatever he's trying to do in your heart and in your family. Jesus, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction and give them peace? Transform our hearts. Transform our relationships. Father, if our walls could talk, starting today, let them start telling a different story. We're moving forward. Old things have past. You make all things new. In Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet with me today? Pastor Bear is going to keep the environment worshipful in a few minutes. Haley and I will slip to the guest reception. But waiting in the presence of the Lord, letting Him do what He's doing in your heart right now is the most important. And if you just want to kneel or spend time at the front of this building, it is available and open Don't rush out if God's dealing with you. God bless you.